This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, a podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. This is episode 272, entitled, Is Jesus Yahweh the Debate Rebuttals? I'm quickly going to just offer a few comments about the rebuttal section of the debate, and then I'm going to step out of the way so that you can actually listen to the rebuttals of the recent debate that William Barlow and I participated in on the subject of whether the Bible teaches that Jesus is Yahweh. Hopefully you've had a chance to listen to the debate in its entirety, but if you haven't, then this episode, the following episodes, and our previous episode, episode 271, will help bring you up to speed. Last episode, we looked specifically at the opening statements, and in this episode, you will hear the rebuttal section, in which I personally wrote the rebuttal based on their opening statement. I wanted to give a couple of insights into what we were doing during the debate so that you can kind of feel like you were there with us during the planning of this in real time. So something that people aren't aware of is that prior to the debate, our debate partners, Samuel and Kyle, decided at the last moment that they aren't going to be using a PowerPoint for their opening statement. This, of course, made it a little bit more difficult for us to acquire all the information from their opening statement in a way that was easy to read and discern because we had 15 minutes of an opening statement to respond to in only a 10-minute portion, and that's very difficult to do because you have to be able to summarize and respond and correctly um, rebut 15 minutes worth of content in only 10 minutes without leaving anything out. So it was quite difficult to do, so we were taking a lot of notes. But I do think that in this rebuttal section, which I wrote and performed in the debate, as you're going to soon hear, I was able to accomplish, I think, three things. First, I was able to demonstrate that I wanted to respond to all of their points and that all of their points uh, were something that uh, were problematic and that had issues that uh, needed to be rebutted in the debate. I offered some evidence as to why their propositions were incorrect and some uh, biblical passages to support those particular points. We knew they were going to bring up the issue of worship, so I made sure that I had a pre-written out response to worship that I think uh, proved to be very effective to that. I was able to look up all the references to where human beings are worshipped in the Bible and actually have that written out for a nice, very powerful statement. And then I was able to show why our position was actually a better choice. And in a debate, I think it's important to do that. You can't just simply point out the problems with the other view. You have to show the audience why what you're proposing is actually better than the other view. So we did those three things in our rebuttal section. We acknowledged all of their points. We rebutted all of their points with evidence to support the rebuttal. And then we also showed and demonstrated why what we are offering in our perspective, that 
Jesus is not Yahweh, according to the Bible, is actually the better option. So without further ado, I'll let you listen to the rebuttal section to where Kyle and Samuel try to rebut our opening statement, I think quite unsuccessfully, because you're going to notice that they don't even respond to many of our points. And then you'll look at our rebuttal section in which I'm able to, I think, respond to all of their points. So thanks so much for listening. Please join us for our next episode. We're going to look at the first round of cross-examination. All right. Thank you so much, uh, William and Dustin, for that open statement. And now we're going to transition to our rebuttal rounds. And Samuel and Kyle are back in the seat for a 10-minute rebuttal. Thank you. Thanks very much, Will, for the opening statement. Uh, in our opening statement, we made two contentions, and that is contention number one. Uh, the Bible does not deny that Jesus is Yahweh. And as we're looking through the opening statement of uh, Will, uh, we, we're noticing a few things here. Number one, uh, there was no explicit reference given, and I'm sure that Will himself would grant this. There was no explicit reference given that denies that Jesus is either God or Yahweh. None whatsoever. But there were certain implicit passages that were given. Uh, and this must be, the reason I'm saying this is to contrast this within our opening position, that which is our second contention, that the Bible explicitly calls Jesus Lord, which is the in the sense in which it's applied in the Old Testament as Yahweh. So that, that itself ought to be the first thing to, to pay attention to. But let's look at some of the passages, the implicit passages they gave uh, or, or will give to demonstrate that Jesus is not Yahweh. Uh, the first argument is that Yahweh is a personal name of God. Uh, and the argument here is that Yahweh is a father. And therefore, since Jesus, uh, th therefore, that must mean that Yahweh only applies to the father alone. Now, this is simply false because on a number of occasions, uh, the Bible actually applies the title father to Jesus, though it must be said, not in the definite article sense. Uh, Isaiah 9.6 refers to Jesus as everlasting father. Uh, Aviad, right? And, and, and Luke 15, in the parable of the prodigal son, uh, Jesus actually describes himself as the father in that story, not to be confused with God the father, but himself. Uh, in, in, if, you, if you discuss the self-understanding of Jesus in the parable of the prodigal son, which begins with an angry religious group upset with Jesus for receiving the sinners and tax collectors, uh, Luke 15, 3 says he tells them this parable, uh, in my own understanding, in response to, to, their, to their tension, uh, their, them being upset with him for receiving sinners. And he tells them the story of the prodigal son, where he is the father, there is a sinful, rebellious son who has come back, and there's an angry, self-righteous son. And so in, in that story, Jesus identifies himself, or at least understands himself, to be the father of both the unrighteous Jew and the self-righteous Jew. Uh, and thus, I would say that first argument does not work at all. Not by Jesus' self-understanding, not by the Old Testament. What about the second argument, that Jesus is a human name given to the Son? And here, uh, Will cited Larry Hurtado. I want to say quite clearly that Larry Hurtado would agree with me. The late Larry Hurtado distinguishes between God and Lord in the same way that I do. Uh, I, I would fully agree with Larry's uh, distinction of God and Lord. What Larry is simply saying is that God refers to uh, the Father in the New Testament so that Jesus cannot come and simply say, I am God. That would be to confuse him with God the Father. Instead, Larry argues that Jesus identifies himself as Lord being equal to the Father. 
And so in that sense, the New Testament authors argues, Larry uh, Hurtado, distinguish between God and Lord, applying the Elohim equivalent theos in the New Testament to Jesus and the Yahweh to, uh, sorry, uh, let, let me rephrase that, Elohim to, to God the Father and the Yahweh in the New Testament, uh, Kyrios to Jesus Christ. And so in that sense, Larry Hurtado is simply agreeing with everything that we've just said in this opening statement. What about the third argument that was given? Uh, that the Messianic expectation uh, is distinct from Yahweh here. Uh, Will cited Deuteronomy chapter 18. But if you look at Deuteronomy 18, 18 to 20, nothing in Deuteronomy 18, uh, was 18 to 20, denies that the Messiah is in fact Yahweh. All it says is the Messiah is sent by Yahweh, and we don't deny that Jesus was sent by God, by God the Father. That does not negate Jesus being God, because that very assumption itself is a Unitarian assumption. And may I add an assumption that the scripture does not teach. In fact, the scripture teaches both in the Old and in the New Testament, and we can get in this in the cross-examination, that Yahweh is more than one person. Now, uh, it, he, he also argued that uh, in point three, that Yahweh is not equal to the Father. In fact, Yahweh is, uh, sorry, Jesus is not equal to the Father, and that Jesus is described as a servant of Yahweh and therefore not to be confused with Yahweh. Here again, I think with all due respect, Will is mistaken because even in Isaiah chapter six, uh, the passage that I cited where Yahweh say, uh, where Isaiah says he sees Yahweh, uh, it, or rather the angels are calling the figure that yeah, Isaiah sees as Yahweh. Isaiah makes this important point in Isaiah chapter six. I saw the Lord, Adonai, high and lifted up. And that's a key phrase, because when you go to the servant songs of Isaiah chapter 53, 52 to 53, at the end of Isaiah 52, in the servant songs, where it's talking about the servant of Yahweh, it says, behold, my servant shall be high and lifted up, which means that the exact servant that was high and lifted up uh, in Isaiah 53, who is the suffering servant, the Messiah, is the same figure in Isaiah chapter 6, who Isaiah saw uh, seated in heaven. Uh, and, and the train, seated rather uh, with the train of his robe filling the temple. So again, I would say that the Old Testament itself would disagree uh, with Will on that. Uh, and the other thing is uh, to, to say that uh, he also mentioned in this third argument that, that Jesus being exalted to the right hand of Yahweh means that Jesus is distinct from Yahweh. Again, I, I would have to respectfully disagree based on Philippians chapter 2, which states explicitly don't have to interpret this explicitly. Christ Jesus, though in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. When does this take place? This takes place before the incarnation. Because he considers equality with God something not to be clinging on to, he humbles himself and takes on being born in the likeness of men. So the incarnation comes after the, the hum, Jesus humbling himself. Uh, and so in that sense, when you read about the Father exalting Jesus, giving him a name above all name, that comes in the context after Jesus has given up uh, or, or relinquished his equality with the Father in the sense of taking on human nature. So again, I think that even scripture would uh, openly uh, disagree with Will's assessment. But uh, in the remaining few minutes I have, I do want to pass the time to uh, uh, Dr. Carl to see if he wants to respond to anything else. Go ahead, Dr. Carl. Samuel, on a call like this, you can just call me Kyle. <laughs> All right. <laughs> hey, Will thank, you so, Will, thank you so much. That was an excellent opening. 
Uh, it's clear that you are a very good debater and it's clear that you are a preacher because I could see that passion there whenever you were speaking. Uh, thank you so much as well for sticking to the topic. Does the Bible teach that Jesus is Yahweh? Uh, we're not going to get into rabbinics. We're not going to get into fourth Ezra, the similitudes of Enoch. We are going to stick with scripture. And I love that. Um, I would want to point out a couple of things, though. Uh, you had asked at one point that we set aside our beliefs in order to interpret scripture. I don't think that that's something that we can or should do. Um, in fact, I would argue that we bring our presuppositions to the text, and what we're looking at is not so much um, how we could set those presuppositions aside, but whether or not our presuppositions and the view of the text that we have is consistent. So there was almost nothing that you said in the opening statement that I couldn't say as a Trinitarian. So for instance, you said um, that we would disagree that Yahweh is a singular noun with a singular referent. Whenever I refer to God, I refer to him as him. I use singular pronouns, singular verbs, everything else, because I believe that Yahweh is one. Um, I do not believe in tritheism or three gods. I believe in one God who has three upostases, three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And so whether or not there are 20,000 references to Yahweh as a single uh, unity, well, we would agree. Yahweh in his being is a single unity. Um, I would as well point out what Samuel mentioned. You quoted Larry Hurtado, you quoted Richard Bauckham, you quoted Ben Witherington. Uh, these are all Trinitarians. And in fact, all of them, um, of course, Larry Hurtado has gone to be with the Lord, um, but all of them are evangelical. And so they would claim that scripture alone teaches that Jesus is Yahweh. And in fact, books like God Crucified or The One Lord that you mentioned or uh, uh, BW3, Ben Witherington, he's, he's written on this topic as well. And uh, they would all argue with us that there is a creator-creature distinction, but that through Jesus being worshipped, the type of honor he receives, and various passages that are attributed to him, Jesus falls on the creator side of this distinction. Uh, hopefully in the cross-examination we'll have more time. You seem to speak of divinity as a spectrum. Like there are non-divine things, and then there are these agents that are kind of divine, and then you get over here to Yahweh. But we would deny that. We would say that the Bible teaches a strict monotheism where only Yahweh and his, his hypostasis, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, are on the side of Creator. All right. Thank you guys for that rebuttal. All right, William and Dustin, you're back in the seat for your 10-minute rebuttal. And I will start your time as soon as you begin to speak. Also, William, if you want to take that, yeah, there you go. I see you doing it. There you go. Uh, so once again, I'll start your time as soon as you guys begin to speak. All right. Thanks so much for your spirited opening statement. Uh, I'm pretty sure that we can all agree this is going to be an excellent debate. Now, their position argues in the affirmative that the Bible teaches that Jesus is Yahweh. And I want to spend some time talking about their main points. Now, granted, we only have 10 minutes to respond to a 15-minute opening statement, so we're going to have to kind of summarize and put some things together. If there's something that uh, uh, would need a little bit more time, uh, I encourage uh, my 
uh, my dialogue partners uh, to raise it in cross-examination. So they suggested that the Bible does not deny that Jesus is God based on three passages from John, John 5, John 8, and John 10. Now, this might appear to be a really good argument, but I'm going to demonstrate that it actually is very problematic because there's a major theme in the gospel, John, called the theme of misunderstanding that every single commentary points out. And the theme of misunderstanding has basically three points. It has Jesus saying something provocative. That's point one. Point number two, his dialogue partners misunderstand him, either by interpreting him literally or by asking an appropriate question. And the third part has either Jesus or the narrator explaining what actually Jesus meant. And when they cited these passages, they only cited the part that Jesus makes a provocative statement. In two of those passages, Jesus actually responds to their misunderstanding by saying that he is an obedient son and a son who is authorized and empowered by the Father, whom Jesus calls the only true God. Now, in John chapter 8, there was a long buildup of misunderstandings to where as you continue to read through verses 40 through all the way to the end of like 59, 60, uh, it becomes quite clear that the misunderstandings just get more ridiculous as the passage goes on. So their accusation of blasphemy is actually due to Jesus making a claim to be the Messiah. When he says, egoimi, he is saying, I am he, which by the way is a term that Jesus defined to mean I am the Messiah in John 4.26. And this, of course, is a term with which the Jews disagreed and picked up stones to stone him. So I think our position is a better choice because in the Gospel of John, Jesus is actually making messianic claims, not claims to be Yahweh. And of course, Jesus refers to the Father as the only true God, and then Jesus differentiates himself from that category of the only true God in chapter 17, verse 3. Now, they also raised the point of worship, suggesting that Yahweh is worthy of worship, Jesus worshiped, therefore, that would suggest that Jesus is Yahweh. This is a problematic argument because worship is not only due to God. In 1 Chronicles 29, 20, we can see that Yahweh is worshipped and also the king is worshipped. They're both the object of worship. And there's no threat to monotheism or any suggestion that there's blasphemy that's taken place. In fact, the Bible is quite clear that human beings can indeed receive worship. That is to be the object of the Greek verb proskuneo, without suggesting in the slightest that they are Yahweh, the God of Israel. Let me give you a list of people, human beings, that are authoritatively the object of proskuneo. The patriarch Jacob, Joseph, Judah, Jethro, Boaz, Jonathan, King Saul, King David, King Solomon, Bathsheba, the prophet Elisha, the prophet Daniel, and even Christians can be worshipped according to Jesus himself in Revelation 3 verse 9. So I think our position is a better choice because Jesus is, of course, worthy of worship because he is the Messiah, not as Yahweh himself. Now, they spent a lot of time working through Daniel, through Daniel chapter 7, where clearly the Son of Man receives worship. Why this argument is problematic? Well, let me tell you. The Ancient of Days, someone who, by the way, is distinct from the Son of Man, the Ancient of Days, according to Daniel 7.14, is one who shares his dominion. He shares his authority, his glory, and his kingdom with the Son of Man. So God is empowering this qualified human being 
with God's own prerogatives. And then Daniel goes on to unpack the meaning of this prophecy, this vision, revealing the Son of Man to be a representative figure of suffering people of God, originally referring to those Jews suffering in the Maccabean period. What's the evidence for this? Well, as the angel unpacks this in Daniel 7 to 18, it says that the saints, the holy ones of the highest one, will receive the kingdom and they will possess the kingdom forever for all the ages to come when it comes to unpacking what it, the Son of Man actually is. And the same thing happens in verses 21 through 22 where it's unpacked as the suffering holy ones of God. And then, of course, we could see the worship, of course, in 727. The sovereignty and dominion and the greatness of all the kingdoms under whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. But this is God sharing it with qualified individuals in a way that's not a threat to monotheism. So the Son of Man is a representative figure for these qualified human beings. And that, of course, is why Jesus is able to die on behalf of these suffering persons. So why is our position a better choice? Well, it's clear, as we demonstrated in our opening statement, that Jesus is the empowered and authorized Son of Man, one who represents the people of God by actually dying for them. And if he died for them, that means that he is mortal, something that Yahweh is not. They also pointed out Yahweh texts that were used for Jesus. Now, they mentioned Philippians chapter 2. They mentioned 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6, drawing from Deuteronomy 6, 4 in Jude 1.4, uh, which, by the way, is not a Yahweh passage, but we'll set that aside for now. Now, it would take oh, quite a bit of time for us to unpack each of these passages, and we all know that if you pull up commentaries on Philippians 2 and 1 Corinthians 8.6, that they're all 72 pages long in basically every commentary, okay? So I thought I would just take one. I would just take, take one kind of as a characteristic thing. Uh, we'll look at Philippians 2. And, of course, if we want to raise these questions again in cross-examination, I'd be happy to discuss them when we have a little bit more time there. Now, what we see in Philippians 2 is that Paul is actually telling us that God highly exalted Jesus. Those are two different beings. And in doing so, God gave to Jesus the name that is above every name. So this, of course, is God, again, sharing his name, sharing his prerogatives, sharing his privileges with qualified agents, thereby empowering the crucified and risen Jesus, the previously mortal person who has now been raised from the dead. He's now highly exalted, and so highly exalted that he actually receives the name of God, something that he didn't have in verses 5, 6, and 7. The exaltation brings Jesus to a place that is much higher than where he started. And of course, we demonstrated in our opening statement that it is quite characteristic for Yahweh to empower qualified agents. So in Philippians 2, it's quite clear that God and Jesus are distinct. Jesus is not God in Philippians 2. And God shares his name with the highly exalted Jesus. Jesus in other words, does not possess the name Yahweh innately. It is something that he has because God gave it to him, just like we saw in Daniel 7. So why is our position a better choice? Well, this passage is actually cited by our dialogue partners to suggest that Jesus is Yahweh. On closer examination, the passage actually indicates that Jesus is distinct from Yahweh and functions as Yahweh's highly authorized and empowered 
agent. Now, they also listed a variety of passages they called replacement passages. Titles for God, titles for Yahweh are now used for Jesus. Again, this fully fits into the concept of the Jewish principle of agency. An agent fully represents the one who sent him, okay? When I order pizza, and I order from Papa John's, and they show up at the door, and I ask my wife, hey, who's at the door? She says, it's Papa John's, so I go and I open the door, and it's a guy named Steve. And I could say, yes, sure, that's Papa John's, but clearly Steve is the agent who is representing Papa John's. It's so good, we should all have it here, okay? We should all enjoy our Papa John's, but it's quite clear that the person who's delivering it can be referred to by the person who has sent him, and there's no confusion as if Steve, the delivery driver, has been collapsed into the identity of the owner of the franchise, Papa John's. That would be to confuse the agent for the one who sent the agent, which would be to, I think, ignore a pretty obvious point in the Jewish principle of agency. Our point, of course, is better because we're showing that God has highly empowered and authorized Jesus, but this Jesus is a human being, the anointed one. He is the son of Yahweh. So in closing, after hearing the opening statement, I have noticed that there is some equivocating on Yahweh, selective use of the term for worship, and ignoring some context in John's Gospel and Daniel 7. I encourage our audience to hold both sides accountable in their clear, logically coherent, and biblical responses that are offered. Thank you.